0: Hi, welcome to Peacock Politics. Before we get going, a disclaimer of sorts. I recorded this episode in the weeks just before the COVID-19 outbreak turned into this life-altering pandemic, so that's why we haven't referenced it. Now that's done, sit back and join me in learning a little bit more about how Australian politics works in a normal world. Hopefully we get back there soon, and please do all you can to stay healthy. A Podcast One production. You know how you work hard and bring in enough to hopefully enjoy your life or at least get by and the rest goes to tax, yeah? Well, what happens to that tax? It goes to the government, yeah? But then what happens to it? I'm Adam Peacock and on Peacock Politics, it's time to find out exactly where your hard earned tax dollars go, when it gets given to the government and how on earth does it get used. My guest is Stuart Ayres, a senior minister in the New South Wales State Liberal Government. He's been in charge of directing some damn big cheques to some damn big projects. And answering some damn big questions around them too. But Stuart, I guess you get used to that as a politician, answering questions. Yeah, it's
1: part of what we do. We're the custodian of the taxpayers' money. We invest it on their behalf in services and infrastructure. Uh, So we should be able to answer questions on how we make
0: those decisions. So the source of tax money is us and the hard-earned wages go to wherever it goes. So why is it that the government decides where it goes? So the bulk of your tax dollars here in New South Wales, particularly at the state
1: government level, really go to service provision. So those services are running your schools, running your local hospitals, running your local emergency services. So the New South Wales budget that's well in excess of $70 billion, probably getting closer to $80 billion, um, has probably about 75 to 80% of that budget goes to those services. Mm. The other big component of those services is paying people's wages. So services are run by other individuals, the public servants of the of the government, and they're not all office block public servants, which I think sometimes people get a little bit uh, um, misconceived about. Uh, most of the salaries go to teachers, nurses, firefighters, police officers. Um, In fact, over 50% of the state budget goes to paying someone's salary. So before you get to a sports stadium, a museum, an art gallery, a local community project, um, there's probably only a relatively small amount of the budget left to allocate to those projects.
0: So... 80 bill in New South Wales, we're using that as an example. Yeah, getting in that direction. The, the other states have varying degrees. Is it based on population, basically, how much of a budget you have as a state government as opposed to – and then there's another pot for the federal government budget as well.
1: Yeah, so the dollars that get allocated to the states come from a few sources. Uh, we don't collect income tax at the state level, so the income tax that gets taken out of your, your salary every fortnight or a month, however you get paid, goes to the Commonwealth. Uh, and the New South Wales government collects the bulk of its funds through the GST payments, which go to the Commonwealth but get allocated to the states, so a central point of collection. And then we have services, charges and duties, so things like stamp duty, for example, generates revenue. Payroll tax is the other big generator for the state government. So uh, you do pay tax at two levels, and those
0: two levels of tax run those two tiers of government
1: and where we invest that money.
0: So it all goes in, and just one more on the, the pot and who yeah. gets what? Do you go running to the federal government and give me more, give me more type thing as, as a state?
1: Uh, not, not really. A lot of the time we work quite closely with the Commonwealth. So the GST allocation is set by our formula. Uh, that's based on how much revenue the states generate from other sources, and that's designed to equalise the amount of GST that goes out on a per person basis, not really a per capita basis. And that also takes into consideration disadvantages in states, so you'll get a higher per capita allocation uh, to places like the Northern Territory and Tasmania, who don't generate as much money as what New South Wales does. So. Um, A lot of the time we'd like it to be done on a per capita basis. So New South Wales, bigger, gets more. Um, But we recognise that larger states have a role to play in supporting the smaller states who don't have that opportunity to generate as much revenue as what we do. And then on large infrastructure projects, often there's co-contributions from the Commonwealth Government as well. A good example of that is um, the work that we're doing on road infrastructure in Western Sydney, um, particularly linking the new Western Sydney Airport, where the state and the Commonwealth are both investing in those roads.
0: Fair enough. I'd hate to be the guy or the, the woman or the, I don't know, what you do, the, the algorithm to, to work it all out. But yeah, it's
1: called horizontal equal horizontal fiscal equalization. Oh. And that is just way too long a term and not for this podcast.
0: I, I might use that term when I go back <laughs> home with my wife. What is it called again? A horizontal
1: uh, equalization. No, okay. Yeah, that's exactly right. Horizontal yeah. fiscal equalization. Yeah, It means that the money gets distributed so that every person in Australia has the same access to the standard of living, no matter which state you're in.
0: Sounds like a punters club actually on a weekend, <laughs> but that's another topic for another day. Um, So you, you touched on it before. What do you actually do with it once everyone's you've, you've paid all the people who are employed by the state? Then you've got a bit of leftover money and you go, right, how are we going to improve this joint? So is it roads, hospitals, schools that are the main things that, for instance, a state government like yours is looking at?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Most of our capital programs, so the infrastructure that we invest in, goes to transport. It goes to roads and to rail. Um, the capital programs that exist around education, Health and emergency services are the next largest allocations of capital. And then there's a very small amount of money that gets allocated to um, probably the more nice to haves, uh, things like arts, cultural activities, um, sporting facilities, and that's a that's a pretty small section of the overall budget.
0: We will get to stadiums in a moment because that's the example I want to use in yep. terms of how it is all done mm. bit by bit. What are the, the checks and balances done to make sure that you're doing the right thing With the right amount of money for the right project
1: yeah so most of the dollars are allocated out directly to services as we said before but we also run grant programs that uh, community groups can apply for um, service providers can apply for So whether that's in somewhere like community services to help support people with uh, a disadvantaged background, we have a lot of non-government service providers in that space. So they apply for government grants to run particular programs in those communities. And that means the government doesn't have to deliver that service. It can employ a non-government provider to be closer to the ground. So that often provides a better outcome. So
0: you just write a check for someone and then they go... Yeah, they've
1: got service requirements. So when we allocate funding, there's almost always a funding agreement around the delivery of a piece of infrastructure or um, outcomes that they have to achieve. Uh, So, you know, in my electorate, I can think of a few examples... There's an organisation called Gateway Family Services and it runs support services for um, families that are under financial stress or being victims of domestic violence. They have uh, requirements that they have to meet around the outcomes that they produce from that funding and if they do that, often their, their funding is renewed If they haven't met those performance obligations, we sit down and talk to them and say, you know, why didn't you do that? There's often some good reasons, and we'll continue to fund that. Um, But we also do infrastructure for things like local sporting grounds. We do local cultural uh, activities. We've just renewed a whole lot of uh, cenotaphs and war memorials around communities as part of the Centenary of Anzac celebration, which isn't something we do every year, but Mm -hmm. a reflection of the fact that uh, 100 years since the end of the First World War.
0: But who... Who inside government is the one to say, does it go to a committee or does it go like each request for funding or each idea for a big infrastructure program? Is there someone in there that's kind of like, yeah, you might need to tweak it or someone outside yourself or the minister or whoever it is dealing with the face-to-face proposition to say, yeah, that doesn't quite work, no, or yeah, go through with it. So we have a system
1: of government here in Australia Called the Westminster system. We adopted it for the United Kingdom, which makes ministers responsible for what happens in their portfolios. So, final decisions often lie with ministers, but they take recommendations from departments. But you want to make sure that those ministers still have control over what happens uh, with their budgets because, like politicians, get it wrong sometimes. So do public servants, so do the bureaucrats. And so we're the ones that have got our own uh, performance evaluation every four years. It's called an election. If people don't (laughs) like what we've done or the decisions that we made, they they throw us out. Yeah. If they like what we've done, they tend to give us another go at it. Um, and that's the way that system is set up. But what happens in most cases is that for clearly articulated funding programs, there's often a set of guidelines, uh, criteria, and that helps filter out applications from those that are eligible and those that aren't ineligible. Um, and then you might score those uh, projects uh, against a, a set criteria, and then you you'll still make that decision based on your budget because often you'll have an oversubscription. So how do you make a decision there? Or you might even want to trial something new. So if there's an application that provides a, a new opportunity to test a new piece of kit or a new new pe- type of construction methodology, you might want to use a grant program to to test that as well. So there's often a diversity of factors um, that determine how a, a grant application goes out, but. I think in most cases, Ministers work quite closely with their departments um, on, on how they uh, make decisions on who gets what out of a funding program. Um, and then the other area that you get funding from is is election commitments, um, because an election is really an articulation of your plan for the future. You know, one of the things we often hear quite a lot is about how you you hear about promises at election time. That's a that's good thing because that's that's when politicians, public representatives are out telling people what their future plan is. So I'd much rather those commitments be made uh, when you're saying, this is my plan for the future. And then it's really important that if you make those election commitments that you stick to those. Um, and so if there's an election commitment that's made, um, you, you deliver those funds. Projects change. Often the scope of a project might evolve Um, The person that you're partnering in for the delivery, uh, they may not have as much money available. They might have to change scope. Construction cost is higher than what was anticipated. So governments have still got to be flexible to make sure that something gets delivered for the community's benefit.
0: Yeah, those old election promises, eh? like the the sporting clubs with the federal government. No, we won't go into that. It's (laughs) it's outside your remit because Mm. you're state government and that's federal government. But uh, yeah, read up on that one. That was an interesting story to say the least. I get pumped when I have the rare opportunity to go out, for instance, with my mates and I've got $300 in my pocket and I can do what I want with it. I've got to be sensible with it, obviously, but yeah, I'm going to try and enjoy myself. What I'm getting at is that you can get a bit silly with your money, you can get emotional with your money, you can lose rationality with your money. How do you maintain that when someone comes to you, when you've got this pot of cash to for want of a better expression to spend on infrastructure or programs that people are asking you to fund Mm. how do you break it down in terms of rational thought as opposed to emotive thought
1: yeah well the first thing that happens is treasury or the treasurer allocates a portfolio budget to each minister Uh, so the capacity to kind of stretch outside your budget is quite limited so if you're the sports minister or the health minister you've got a you've got a set budget and, and you can't Uh, it's very difficult to go and source new funds outside of that budget. So So
0: unlike the night out where you have the key card in your pocket and you go for an extra 200 you can't do that. Treasurers specialise in saying no, right? That's their job. (laughs) Their job's
1: to be the the guardian of the cash uh, and make sure that ministers are investing that appropriately. So we we pro-rata the investment based on where those needs are and that's why there's over... Uh, $26 billion invested in health in New South Wales and a relatively small amount of money invested in arts and cultural institutions um, because the demand and requirements of the government have prioritised health significantly more than those other options. So the first safeguard is the actual budget allocation each minister's got. The second thing that I think good governments do is that They really do try to listen to experts and in New South Wales, particularly from an infrastructure perspective, we established an agency called Infrastructure New South Wales to develop a 20-year infrastructure strategy for the state, tell us what are the most important items of infrastructure across the full remit of all of those different areas and what might be uh, a priority order for us to consider to look at those. And that's where projects like the Northwest Rail, the stadium infrastructure, new hospitals, upgrades to our port facilities, a lot of investment into, into regional infrastructure as well with rail lines, airport upgrades have come from. They've come from those those recommendations. And so we then try to apply our budget to those. And overwhelmingly what we're trying to do is use that infrastructure investment or that investment of taxpayer dollars to grow the size of the economy and create new job opportunities.
0: What happens midstream if you come up with a huge infrastructure program And you get booted, like you say, that you get decided that you've lost the popularity contest at the election, you're out, and it's midstream of a $20 billion road program, for instance, where you've got partnership with the Commonwealth government. What happens then? Well, in most cases,
1: if contracts have been signed and projects are underway, those projects tend to be completed. Mm -hmm. Um, That happens in in most of the circumstances. There's been some uh, examples of where governments have pulled out of those. A uh, Really big, clear example of that was a change that the Victorian government made when it first got elected. The previous government had committed to a, a road project. They they withdrew from that at quite a sizable penalty cost to the taxpayer. Um, but that also sent who a,
0: who got the cost? The, the actual contractor. The in contractor. Center, the...
1: So to pay out to to not proceed with that project came at a penalty cost to the taxpayer. So that that contractor got a nice chunk of the taxpayers' money for doing not, nothing for not delivering a project. So we try to avoid those circumstances as much as possible. Um, And the best way to do that is to um, make good infrastructure decisions and also set up contracts that really do protect the taxpayer's interests. Um, So most of the time, if there is a change of government, if a project's underway, it'll continue and, and be completed.
0: What's it like having people knocking at the door all the time? Lobbyists going, "Gimme, gimme, gimme, Stuart! Give me some money. I need yeah. some money for my project." Well, the to be frank with you, Adam, the
1: the, the most uh, the most forceful lobbyists that I meet are actually mums and dads, and uh, you know, <laughs> local committee men of sporting clubs in in local community groups. The you know, the volunteers of the, the mm. local arts society. You know, they're the people that that local MPs see the most. Um, I know that you know the The mainstream media talks about really big projects the sort of, uh, you know, big multi-million dollar, sometimes billion dollar infrastructure projects. Hospital, airport. Yeah, all of those things. But um, the lobbying activity, I think, sometimes gets a little bit overstated. Local MPs are still there to be the champion and the advocate for their local community. Mm. And so I, th- I would encourage people out there in the community to knock on the door of their local MP, tell them what they think is important, because if they don't hear that from, from their own locals, then they might be uh, susceptible or open to uh, to other forms of influence. There's no greater advocacy than you talking to your local MP.
0: Just on the relationship between, okay, you've, you've decided on a project and you've mm. got contractors involved to... Carry out said project. Yep. How close does that relationship remain with the government and the contractor while it's going on, or do you kind of just there's your money, go build it? No, we we we
1: write in um, performance criteria for for contracts for all of our large scale projects. Um, the departments that are um, working inside government, so New South Wales Health, we've. We've got an agency inside health called Health Infrastructure. It builds hospitals. um, And so it oversees the contract uh, for delivery of hospitals around the state. Um, Transport for New South Wales oversees the contracts for the delivery of rail and and road infrastructure. Um, So those government agencies are still overseeing the delivery of that project. We set performance criteria, milestones. uh, There's payment schedules for meeting milestones um and we work with the contractors that we bring in to deliver those projects to those parameters and often larger projects sometimes they change or there's something that's not predicted in the contracting that comes up it's up to the government uh, and that contractor to to work through that and then so and what you hear a lot about now is alliance partnerships between the government and the contractor um variations of these are sort of public private partnerships where the risk of that project is shared between the contractor and and the public or the government, um, so that if, there's, if the scope of that project uh, hasn't been done as accurately as what you would hope, but with large-scale projects, it's hard to predict everything yeah. over the course of a project that might take eight years to build.
0: I've seen one happen around my local area with a road that never seems to be yep. on the verge of finishing. So those... Um, so you, you try to share that risk um, yeah. and
1: historically we we've probably pushed too much risk to the contractor, to the private sector and if those contracts fall over, some people might say oh well the public hasn't suffered any loss there but the project gets delayed. So the public suffered a loss from not being able to get the project finished. Sitting in traffic. Yep. Indeed. Sitting in traffic, not being able to access the hospital or get on the train. Hmm. But the other loss is it sends a signal that it's hard to do business in New South Wales as well. Hmm. And so when we put out big contracts or even small contracts, we want the best builders. We want the best companies, the best engineers to come and want to work here. And to do that, they've got to know that it's a good partner to work with. And that's pretty much like any
0: business around the world. It's a hard one, though, because you cop it big style if it's delayed, but if it's finished on time, there's no pat on the back. It's just, yeah, well, so it should. Yeah, absolutely.
1: We delivered the the Northwest Rail early and a billion dollars under budget. And, you know, it's a a sidebar column on page 37 of the Daily Telegraph. Um, If it's a day late and a little bit over budget, it's probably on the front page. But, Mm. hey, we're volunteers, not conscripts. So uh, (laughs) I think we... uh, we just front up and do the job as best we can.
0: So I wanted to use an example. In New South Wales, there's been a project that was announced a while back now, and it's finally underway. It's the, the stadiums project. So there was a, one built in Western Sydney, and that's fantastic. That is now what's known as Bankwest Stadium. There's another one where the old Sydney football stadium was. That's now a uh, pile of Dirt at the moment. And there's another one where the Olympic Stadium was mm. in the west of Sydney, which is going to be upgraded as well. All told it's a billion dollar project over a billion dollar project. So all of those things have taken place. What we've talked about, about how you get the money, how you allocate the funding, but there's one difference to this one. And this is what I wanted to know about a case like this is when the court of public opinion becomes so heavily involved in what you're doing with the money. And this project has been on front page after front page after front page and you have copped it from a variety of people. People agree with you as well. There's talk that it's oh, it's just a backhand deal to look after the establishment in Sydney mm. because they've got that wonderful SCG and the, the next door neighbor stadium, the Sydney football stadium. How do you deal with that when it is such a public issue even though it's not the biggest project because you build a hospital for a lot more money and that's mm. not as high profile?
1: Yeah, it's, it, look, it goes with the territory, it's fair to say, in particular for for infrastructure projects, they are complex in their delivery. I don't think I've ever seen anything delivered by a government that has near 100% universal acceptance. If you think historically, the Opera House was one of the most contentious projects ever delivered in, in the state, that you wouldn't even think about it now. Mm. Um, and the idea of cost overruns and budget blowouts on the Opera House just don't even... Don't even bear contemplation. Same thing with the Sydney Harbour Bridge. I remember reading some old Hansards about members of Parliament opposing the construction of the Sydney Harbour Bridge because it impacted negatively on their local electorate. Um, hmm. Try thinking about Sydney without that. So, whilst there's always going to be a lot of noise, I think it really does require politicians, members of Parliament, ministers, if they've done their if they've done their research and they know what the problem is that they're solving. They've really got to be courageous enough to stay the course and keep explaining that to the public. There's going to be people who support you and there's going to be a lot of people who don't support you. Projects that are not in those key service delivery areas are always going to be subject to more media speculation because quite frankly, it's just really easy to say, don't spend money on a museum or a sports stadium, go and spend it somewhere else. Um, But if you think about the investment in health, for instance, like I said, we spend you know, over, over $20 billion a year, every single year on health. Um, if we're spending a billion dollars on sporting infrastructure once every 35 years, I think we've probably got the balance right there. Um, you're going to spend 200 times, uh, the amount of taxpayer dollars on health than what you are going to spend on sporting infrastructure. That's, that's a percentage that says about 1% is going to sport and a hell of a lot more is going to, to, uh, to health infrastructure. So, You've really just got to stay the course. Um, And the other thing that you've got to stay focused on is the reason why you're doing it. So what's the benefit that you're looking to pass on to the public? And for sporting infrastructure, it's about making sure that Sydney maintains its competitive position in an ever increasingly competitive landscape to major events and ensuring that our sporting franchises can stay competitive. So I want to be able to create jobs. I want people visiting our city. One in 22 jobs in New South Wales are generated by tourism activity. Um, It generates about $40 billion uh, in economic activity. That would contract, means less people with less jobs, less money in the economy if we're not driving that event space. And for us to do that, we've got to have good infrastructure or those big events will go to other locations. Or even worse, our local franchises that we love so much won't be competitive, um, financially competitive, particularly in a pretty crowded marketplace like Sydney.
0: With all that though, and you've seamlessly talked about the facts and the figures yeah. or the facts and the figures that as you know them, mm. but what happens though, when you get personally attacked for being stupid with other people's money, like on a personal level I'm talking about here, not as the politician, Stuart, the politician, just yeah. like, Far out. why can't they see my reason? Because you did cop it and the government as a whole did cop it with the example that I gave.
1: Yeah. Look, I think you've just got to try and push the personal to the side. Um, the old saying is if you're in politics, you've got to have a thick skin. There's no doubt that's true. And I would say in a modern world with 24 hour news cycles, podcasts, radio, TV, free to air TV, pay TV, God knows how many social media feeds that you could look at in a single day. Um, that thick skin is now got to be a lot thicker than what it used to be. Mm. Um, and look, I think I'm probably a bit lucky. I'm a pretty resilient character and I can block out a lot of the personal stuff to stay focused. Um, I don't know that that's that's the case for everyone. It's pretty brutal out there. If you look at social media for athletes, there's no different to social media for politicians. Um, There's some pretty vile stuff that's out there. And I just encourage uh, my colleagues to block that out and stay focused on the thing that they're committed to because they know it's going to deliver an outcome for their community. But that's a pretty hard thing to do.
0: As it goes on, this project that I talked about, the stadiums project, and it's the same, there's other projects like this all around Australia, and especially, it seems sporting stadiums become such an emotive subject because so many people who ordinarily wouldn't give a stuff how our government Mm. spends its money become involved because they'd like to see how it all happens. How do you make sure that it runs on time and stays the course in terms of how you want it to look? Because if it doesn't, it seems like it's doubled down, tripled down in terms of the criticism that you might cop.
1: Yeah. Um, First thing I'd say is the sporting thing is not uniquely Australian. It happens everywhere. Japan's gone through a a really difficult discussion in the lead-up to the Olympics about what they do with their renewed Olympic Stadium. The same thing happened uh, in the United Kingdom after the Olympics about the reconfiguration of the Olympic Stadium uh, for a Premier League club. So these discussions, uh, they, they happen regularly, and it's because the same idea of competitive interests exists no matter what community you're in. So I think we just, like I said, it's about being disciplined, do your research, do your homework and stay the course. Making sure the project get delivered is is just about diligence. It's working closely with your contractors, getting the design right, trying to remove risk. But it's also, and this, the Sydney football stadium is a really good example of this, it's also about making sure that you don't get taken for a right. So we were always a little bit concerned that given the political heat around the Sydney Football Stadium that um on the other side of the election if we were successful as a government that the contractors might be thinking the government's not going to be of a mind here to back out of a contract so we might try and squeeze a bit more out of them so we wrote in clauses to say that we want to see a final price before we commit i think that's a pretty good thing to do in a contract um and if that price isn't what we think is price competitive we reserve the right to go back to market. Uh, And that's what we did. And so we changed um, contractors from demolition into construction. So we cleared the site under one contractor and have now moved to a different contractor to build. Um, And that's because the first price wasn't good enough. And I think any minister who doesn't protect taxpayers' dollars and gets the best deal for the taxpayers probably not doing the job.
0: Ever look back on a project and go, what on earth did we give that amount of money for that for?
1: Um. Oh, not one that comes to mind um, straight off the top <laughs> I of my head. Didn't think you
0: were going to volunteer no, no, one. <laughs> I, I, I haven't
1: really thought of one. Um, Does it happen? Uh, I think there are some projects um, that that cost more than what you hope they would cost to deliver, and in the early stages of those those projects operating, you might think, "Geez, have we overinvested here?" Um, but I think over the long run, if the asset's going to you know last twenty, thirty. Forty years, you're probably going to get your return back, even on that larger investment. The challenge is you're investing in a time frame uh, that's relatively short, and the dividend comes over a long period of time. Mm. And so, in that short time frame, you're you've got so much competition for what that dollar could go to. So you want to try and get the best value when you make that decision. Um, but yeah, there's not. I'm not thinking of any ones that stand out. I think when we see the odd project here and there, um, you kind of go, geez, we could have tweaked that or done that differently. And often the evolution of a project might see those things change or corrected over time.
0: With the federal government and also the state government, in terms of the pot that's there, are we in a pretty secure space that, in Australia, that enough tax money is going to the budget pot to be split up? Or is there an out of balance um, figure there that uh, needs to be corrected somehow? So we
1: have, um, without being too technical, we have probably a, a couple of challenges. One of those challenges is called vertical fiscal imbalance. I have that regularly. Yeah, yeah, indeed. What that means is that where money is collected is vastly different from where it's spent. And so, over the last really fifty years, we see more and more money being collected by the Commonwealth and less and less money collected by the states. But the actual distribution or where the expenditure item occurs is more equal. So it's about 25% is collected by the state, 75% by the Commonwealth, but the expenditure is closer to 50-50. So that means there's a transfer cost. So anything that costs money means it's less efficient. So reducing that imbalance would probably create a more efficient tax system and a more efficient distribution of taxpayer dollars to where it's needed. So that's definitely a challenge uh, that the governments across the country could look to embrace and try and find a better pathway forward the other big challenge for us is an aging population Mm. and so what an aging population means is there's a smaller portion of the population working and therefore generating tax trying to support a larger portion of the population that's no longer generating tax revenue now no one wants to slug pensioners and older people they've made a significant contribution But there is an economic reality that if people live longer um, and they spend less time working in their older age, they will be making less of a contribution at that point in time. So there are some challenges for our tax base and our tax system that we have to look at as a a government, as a country, and be courageous enough to have those discussions. Or it will be those peripheral areas of the government expenditure Mm. that come under the most pressure because you're unlikely to cut transport health education before you chop arts and sport funding
0: so the the first three there that you mentioned they're the pillars they're, yeah. the, they're the, the main things you have to at look the state after.
1: level the 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 big components are health, education, transport and emergency services. What about at a federal level?
0: Uh, at a federal level, they their
1: service provision is around um, the Defence Force. Mm. So it's, an, it's a national endeavour. They also run the social security system for the entire country. Medicare. So, yeah, yeah, so Medicare, Centrelink, um, all of those payment systems that underpin um, the people that are coming in and out of employment or have cost pressures in life. And we make that investment in a really conscious fashion because it would cost more to the government if they weren't able to make a contribution back into the economy. So Mm. a small amount of money that helps those people make a bigger contribution delivers a bigger dividend for the rest of the country. And so that's why we invest in social security payments. But those two things are big, sizable payments for the Commonwealth. Um, Then they invest in infrastructure. They also run all of our primary health services, which means you're GPs. So states run hospitals and the Commonwealth funds are the GP network as well. So health, education, defence and social security are the big chunky bits of the federal budget.
0: But the, the way that everything's split up is in a similar manner to what you've described in New yep. South Wales, for example, the other states and federal yeah. government. So every year, the each government, the state government and federal government announce a budget.
1: Mm. Um, it roughly tells you how much revenue has been collected, We tell you how much money we're going to spend. If your spendings is less than your revenue, you have a surplus. If you spend more than you've collected, you have a deficit. We try to run balanced budgets, which means small surpluses. um, And that's allocated out at the start of every financial year. The federal budget's handed down in May. Our budget's handed down in June. And largely the objective of government is to try and stick as closely to that as possible. Um, And one of the good things the New South Wales government's been able to do is run consistent surpluses over a
0: period of time. Oh, that magic word, surplus.
1: Yeah. Uh, it's Well, it's important. You don't want too big a surplus, but yeah. what a surplus does, because a lot of people say, well, if you're a service-level government, why do you need to run a surplus? Why wouldn't you just spend yeah. a little bit Break more even. on health yeah. and education? Right now is actually the epitome of the reason why you need to run a surplus. It's the rainy day, or in our case, bushfires. So if you don't run a balanced budget and have a small surplus... Uh, they're ready to tap into in the event of a natural disaster or something that's unpredictable. You have then have to cut those existing services to be able to fund the recovery. And when so much of your budget is disproportionately weighted to health, education, transport, and and uh, and emergency services, they're the areas that are that would be under pressure in in this period of time. Our surplus will probably come down um, quite considerably to. Uh, work with the bushfire recovery, but that's because we were disciplined enough to have that buffer to start with.
0: Well, Stuart, I have one hope after this chat and that uh, all governments around Australia, including yours, remain vertically, fiscally upright and not imbalanced. Have I got that right? Sounds pretty good to me. Yeah, I'd never thought I'd say those three words after another, but I have just then. Thank you so much for a chat on it's Peacock fair to Politics. to say I never
1: thought I'd hear Adam Peacock say them either.
0: <laughs> and you probably won't again. Cheers, mate. <laughs> Cheers. Peacock Politics was presented by me, Adam Peacock, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer, Tina Matilov. Sound production by Darcy Thompson. Theme music composed by Matthew Dwyer. Executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. To hear more episodes, go to podcastoneaustralia.com.au or search Peacock Politics on Apple Podcasts.